but these guitars for so many people it's a memory it's a tool it's a toy it's something that brings them joy and things that they can pass on to their kids as these guitars get older they just get better it's like a fine wine right Hey everyone, Steve here. That was my friend Tommy Graves, and believe it or not, that's me playing the guitar. Before I tell you about Tommy, I want to tell you about that guitar. Its story didn't begin in the crowded workshop in Madrid, Spain, where it was created. It began at the Dallas airport, where it was savagely disassembled by a baggage claim belt. When I was 13, we moved to Spain. That was the late 1960s. Generalissimo Franco was still running the place, and it was frankly just a really good time to live overseas. I loved it. Once I got over the strangeness of a new country, I pretty much went native, as they say. Like my friends, I rocked out to Led Zeppelin, Blood, Sweat, and Tears, and the Beatles, but I also came to love classical and flamenco guitar, which were both so popular in Spain at the time. And so it was that I began to take lessons from a Spanish master, Professor Molina, a contemporary of Andres Segovia and Narciso Yepes. Once a week he came to the house and he'd spend an hour with me as I struggled to play the chords and rhythms of Spanish guitar. He alternated between supportive teacher and terrifying taskmaster. One minute he would praise my fingering on a difficult piece and the next he would smack my thumb because it peaked above the neck of the guitar. Pulga, he would hiss. Get that thumb down. I practiced and practiced on my beginner guitar, learning more complex pieces, mastering new techniques, and then the day came when Professor Molina told me that it was time to graduate to a better instrument. He took me downtown to meet Luis Arrostegui Granados, a Madrid guitar maker. We entered this dark, crowded shop where he introduced me to Luis, who set about measuring me for the guitar that my professor described to him. Six weeks, he told me. Come back in six weeks and it will be ready, and it will cost 21,000 pesetas. That was about $300 at the time. Well, the days dragged on, as you can imagine, but he finally called, and I rushed down to collect my new baby. She was beautiful. Dark ebony fretboard, rosewood sides, Palo Santo trim, the body was the color of single malt scotch, and it smelled exotic, the way I imagine frankincense or myrrh to smell. And the sound, if melted butter were converted to music, that would be the voice of my guitar. So I took it home and began to play. The action was so much better than the cheap practice guitar I'd been using, and the sound was mellow and rich. My practice sessions stretched to five or six hours. My mom often had to call me several times to the dinner table, after which I'd return to my bedroom to continue playing. In the summer of 1971, we returned to the States for the very first time since moving to Madrid. I took my guitar, of course, and the people at TWA allowed me to carry it on board. When we arrived in New York, we changed from TWA to Braniff, where I was told that I had to check the guitar, but that it would be hand-carried to and from the plane. I agreed, but I didn't feel good about it. We made it to Dallas and went to baggage claim. I saw my mom's cosmetic bag slide down the belt, followed by the neck of my guitar and then the top half of the body, the mangled wreckage of the case, and the rest of the instrument now reduced to kindling. I was speechless. 
Gathering up all the pieces, I went to the service department where a snarky attendant tried to get me to sign a release giving Braniff the right to have the guitar repaired. When I refused, the agent said to me, well, I guess you should have stayed in Spain. Well, that was a mistake. The agent, who unfortunately for him was Hispanic, got both barrels in rapid-fire Spanish, which frankly must have been terrifying coming out of a teenage gringo. I left with the remains of my guitar and a copy of the unsigned form. When we got to my grandparents' house, I called Bob Verlack, my best friend in Spain, as well as my guitar partner. Bob also took lessons from Professor Molina. His dad was TWA's country manager. Well, his dad worked some magic with his Braniff counterpart, and the next thing I knew, I got a very substantial check from Braniff, which was about 12 times the replacement cost for the new guitar, since it was based on the replacement value in the States, not Spain. Well, when we got home, back to Madrid, I called Luis and told him what had happened. He told me to come in to be measured for a new guitar. I did, and I took the broken guitar with me. He just shook his head and made that typical sound that Spaniards make when they're being sympathetic. I gave him the pieces since I had no use for them. Six weeks, he told me. You come back in six weeks and I'll have a new guitar for you, and it will cost 24,000 pesetas. Well, the time passed slowly, and when Luis called, I took the bus and subway to his shop, where he met me with a big smile. It is beautiful, he told me, even prettier than the first one. We went into the workshop, and he reverently handed me my new guitar. It was beautiful, different from the first, with a slightly more baritone sound. I played it for about ten minutes or so, and then I put the guitar back in the case and pulled out my wallet. Twenty-five thousand pesetas, Luis said to me. But you told me twenty-four thousand, I responded. Well, he smiled and reached over my head to take down a guitar that was hanging up there with all the others. It was my original guitar. He had rebuilt it for the equivalent of $14. It now had scars, but it still had the same tone and timbre that it always did. Years later, that new guitar was stolen, but I still have the first one. She's now 49 years old, and like me, she's a little bit dry and brittle, but she sounds as good now as she ever did. At least she did, until another unfortunate event silenced her. Who did it doesn't matter, but the fact that it happened does. A clumsy act by a careless guest led to the guitar's next and hopefully last trauma. When someone sits on the neck of an antique guitar, something's going to give, and trust me, it isn't the person's gluteus maximus. With a brittle crack, the headstock of the guitar snapped off a messy compound fracture that left wood shrapnel everywhere. By now we were living in Vermont. Luis had retired long ago. Professor Molina had passed on a decade hence, and I didn't know what to do. Well, by chance, I wandered into a local guitar shop in my town to buy a microphone cable. And while I was in there, I asked the guy behind the counter if he knew anyone who repaired classical guitars. He did, and he gave me the guy's name and number, Tommy Graves. He lived a couple of towns over. So later that day, I called Tommy, the founder of Vermont Guitar Works, and made an appointment to have him look at my guitar. Tommy met me at the door of his shop and invited me into, well, the same shop where the guitar was born in 1970. It was deja vu all over again. A chaos of tools and guitar parts and signed photographs of musicians and the smells, it was a riot of exotic woods and oils and glues. There were old vacuum tubes lying around and a coffee can full of old frets. 
The Wizard of Hogwarts would have felt comfortable here. The shelves behind the workbench were lined with bottles of murky liquids and tools, the purposes of which I could only begin to guess. Tommy's a big guy, a gentle giant. He has long gray hair flowing down his back and Polynesian-looking tattoos running down his arms. His smile lights up the room. After he gave me a tour of the shop and we chatted for a couple of minutes, I reached over to open the guitar case, but Tommy gently pushed it closed and said, First, tell me her story. So I told him about Luis and how the guitar was so horribly broken the first time and how he repaired her and how the second break happened. He listened to the whole story, his arms crossed, a slight smile on his face, and then he said, okay, let's take a look. I took the guitar out of the case and handed it to him. Tommy put it on a special cradle on his incredibly crowded workbench and he looked it over. He ran his hands over the top, the neck, the sides, and the back. He then turned on a big monitor that was mounted on the wall, and from under a pile of parts on the corner of the bench, he pulled out a long, slender cable that turned out to be an endoscope, a flexible camera, which he inserted into the sound hole. The inside of my guitar, which I had never seen before, appeared on the monitor. He told me that he was checking for internal damage as he passed the camera over every surface of the inside of the instrument. As he looked at the struts and the supports, he pushed on the front and back faces of the guitar, watching for movement, a sign that the glue had dried out and that things were separating. And in fact, he found several of them that were coming loose. When he finished the inspection, Tommy carefully fitted the broken headstock onto the neck, then looked at the baggie I had brought that contained all the wood fragments that had splintered off. I can do this no problem, he told me. It'll be about a month before I have it done, but I'll keep you posted. I expressed concern about the complexity of the job, and he had the perfect answer. When Tommy Graves, nothing is beyond repair. All guitars are restorable. It's just a matter of how much effort and time you want to put into it. Well, that made me feel pretty good. I told him there was no hurry, and I left with a huge hug from my newfound friend. The next day, I received a text message from Tommy. It said, had to get started on the repair, just couldn't wait. Here's a picture of the clamp party I had today. The photo attached to the message looked like an operating room with a patient in the middle of a heart transplant. I could just make out the body of my guitar, but the neck was unrecognizable. It was surrounded by a forest of wood clamps that stabilized the repair he had done. Every day for the next week, I got messages and pictures from Tommy showing the progress he was making. If Michelangelo had had social media, I suspect the Pope at the time would have felt like I did with the updates. It was amazing. Ultimately, though, despite all the effort, he wasn't able to reattach the original headstock to the neck of the guitar. It was so badly broken that it just wouldn't hold the string tension. What he did instead was just this side of medieval sorcery. Tommy very carefully carved a delicate curving slot, basically a big V, into the top of the neck, about two inches deep. He then hand-carved a new headstock based on the original, including the various layers of laminated precious woods, and ever so carefully slotted it into the notch that he carved in the neck. It fit like a dream. In fact, you'd never know it isn't the original. I got the guitar back from Tommy a week or so later with new strings, a new bridge, and a new lease on life. So if you have a stringed instrument that's in pain, especially if you're in the northeastern U.S., contact Tommy Graves at vermontguitarworks.com or at his Facebook page, Vermont Guitar Works Hospital. This guy is a wizard. Now, you have to admit, that's a pretty cool story. But believe it or not, 
that's not the real story in this podcast. You see, it turns out there's a lot more to Tommy Graves than what I just told you. An awful lot more. You'd think that, given the skill level he has around guitar repair, he's spent his entire life as a professional luthier or a fine woodworker or a professional musician. But in fact, while he's been a guitar player since he was a kid, he never studied how to build them. He's entirely self-taught. I'm going to let him tell the story. It's actually pretty interesting. Here's Tommy Graves. As a kid, I always was fascinated in how things worked. So my mom still shares this this story about this cassette deck that she bought me for like my 10th birthday. Within a week, I had this cassette deck completely disassembled. I took it apart because I wanted to know how does it work? Like when I press that play button, I think I see things spinning around and sound is coming out. I wanted to know how things worked. And that basically just started this whole process as a kid, constantly trying to figure out how things worked. And that led to bicycles and, 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 and gasoline engines and, and all kinds of fun things. And then guitars. And I was taking them apart, trying to understand. My thought was if I could open it up and get inside, I could figure out how it works. And many times that was true, but I still had a lot of questions. And I still didn't quite understand. So this basically was the catalyst over my school years as I was growing up and decided to go to technical school where I got a degree in electrical engineering. And because that just seemed to be the right thing to do because... If I had an electromechanical degree background, then I could use that to further indulge my desire to learn how things work and, and create and all this other business. When I graduated from tech school, that was right when semiconductor industry was really ramping up. IBM was uh, really growing rapidly. This would have been in the uh, 80s and um, basically started uh, working for various uh, supplier companies, engineering uh, industrial equipment for the semiconductor industry. And I did that for a good almost 30 years. If you've been halfway paying attention, you may be wondering how Tommy made the leap from electrical engineering and the semiconductor industry to building and repairing guitars. Well, the truth is he didn't. If you'd asked me back then that 20, 30 years later that I would be building a motorcycle on a national television program on a build a, on a motorcycle build-off show, I would have, no way, I would have never believed it. Um, but that's what had ended up happening. You know, it's a funny thing. The most interesting people I have ever met, and Tommy clearly qualifies as one of those, all took nonlinear paths to their ultimate careers. It's all about the lessons that life puts in front of you and passion and the degree to which you allow that curiosity and passion to guide your life. I grew up with motorcycles and I was in my, I don't know, late teens when I started to weld on them. My neighbor had a welder. This was a cool thing. I said, wow, so we can cut, manipulate this metal and then put it all back together any way we want using this welder. So Tommy learned how to weld, but it didn't stop there. He had some money, so he bought a metal lathe and a milling machine, basically his own machine shop, and he started working on his own motorcycles, cutting them up, shaping them, doing little custom things to them. It was right around that time I was learning the Internet and learning how to use Google and, you know, and finding stuff. I mean, it's a great world we live in where we can go online and have a whole plethora of information before us. I learned a lot of that stuff online. I got books. 
Um, I knew some people that had some experience in those areas. And before I knew it, a few of those pictures of those early bikes that I did ended up on the internet where a TV executive producer was actually seeking out possible builders for this TV show that he was doing. And uh, I literally got an email through uh, a forum website saying, hey, I'm so-and-so from blah, 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 uh, saying, hey, would you be interested in being a part of uh, putting together this new TV series? And this was like during the heyday of biker build-off, American Chopper, I mean, Discovery Channel, all those channels were huge into that. It was really, really big. I honestly thought the email was a a fake. I said, "This this is not real. I'm, this is a scam. One of my buddies from work is doing this. And I proceeded that way. I'm like, ha, 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 very funny. I actually wrote back, who is this? And uh, and uh, he wrote back. Uh, God bless him. And he wrote back. He says, no, this is this is for real. If you'd like to give me a call, here's my number. And check us out. This is the website and everything. I was like, wow, so this is really real. And it was real. The producer was from ESPN for their Metric Revolution motorcycle build-off show. They asked him for a few things. You know, they kind of gave me a little breakdown of what they were looking for. And uh, an audition tape, video of your shop and your bikes and the stuff that you're doing and uh, all this kind of stuff. And then uh, it was it was several months after I submitted that video that uh, uh, before I got the call. Guess what? You're, in, you're on the show if you want to be part of this. And we start filming on this date. The whole premise of the show was they were going to they were going to give you a motorcycle of their choosing brand new motorcycles right off the showroom floor and you had six months to do anything you want to it to compete in a custom build-off motorcycle show this this was hard for me in the sense that i'm a perfectionist and i didn't want to go into this unless i was fully loaded for bear i you know and i had a full-time job at the time and uh and it, nothing became real to me until the motorcycle was delivered to my home. And the film crew showed up at my house that they flew in. At that time, we could afford to do a leave of absence for six months to do this build-off. My wife is very supportive, and God bless her. We sat and talked about it. She goes, yeah, I think you got to do this. So I took six months off, and from my day job, and my new day job was building the craziest most amazing motorcycle that I could based on a on a Honda VTX 1300. It was an incredible amount of work, particularly given the deadline that he and the other contestants were working under. Building his motorcycle became Tommy's full-time job. But in the end... We won the competition. We took first place. They actually filmed the, the finale in Las Vegas, and we spent a week out there filming for the finale. Even then, I didn't know if I won. I didn't know until literally I was on stage, and they made that announcement. I, there was four of us uh, that um, were up on that stage uh, waiting to find out who, who won the competition. Now, you should pause the podcast here and take a moment to go look up a picture of the bike that Tommy built. If you search for Tommy Graves' Smackdown, which is the name of the bike, you'll see why he won. If Batman's colors were green and silver, this is the bike he'd build. It's, oh, just go look for yourself. I can't even begin to come up with the words that describe it. Yeah, it's been called many things. The Green Goblin. We called it, affectionately, the Smackdown. And the reason we called it the Smackdown was because, one, we were going to put the Smackdown on all the competition with the bike, which we did. I have to throw that in there. And secondly, a, a neat 
feature of this bike, and this really sucked the life out of me in designing it, was that the bike had no kickstand. It totally relied on an air ride suspension system, not just in the back, but in the front. So it had a telescoping air ride front end suspension. It had a telescoping rear air ride suspension that was all controlled through thumb switches on the handlebars, opening and closing various air solenoids. And what I did was I designed a system that allowed you to press a button and the whole bike would literally just air down and smack down to the ground. So there was no kickstand. There was three points of contact when the when the motorcycle was parked and you weren't riding it, it would it would go to the ground. If you've looked up the bike, you know how stunningly beautiful and wildly unusual it is. Well, Tommy toured with it for a while and then he sold it expecting it to end up in a museum or a display case somewhere. Never in my life thought that somebody would buy this bike with the intention of it becoming a rider. <laughs> I'm actually quite honored by this because the gentleman who bought it rides it every single day. I love meeting people like Tommy. He reminds me of the sentiment behind the signature line that I have on my email, which I think is from Hunter Thompson. It says, life should not be a journey to the grave with the intention of arriving safely in an attractive and well-preserved body, a latte in one hand and a chocolate in the other, but rather to skid in sideways, covered in scars, body thoroughly used up, totally worn out, screaming, Yahoo, what a ride. Tommy Graves, semiconductor engineer, award-winning motorcycle designer, musician, and a wizard of a guitar surgeon. He's one of the best examples of curiosity in action that I know. Thanks, Tommy. Keep doing what you're doing.